1: Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different, a discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Good day, everybody. Another podcast from the other hand. Just a big thank you again to all of our increasing numbers of listeners and all your feedback. It's been great to interact with so many people this week. Our most recent podcast with the CEO of ISME, Neil McDonnell, attracted a lot of attention, actually, and we've been delighted by the way in which that engagement has kicked off all sorts of interesting discussions. One of the things that I took away from that is that the... Next 10 years for the Irish economy can't be like the last 10. The the growth that we've seen in Ireland of jobs, of the economy as a whole, tax revenues, corporate tax revenues, most unlikely to be repeated over the next decade for all sorts of reasons. To the extent that we are going to get growth, and I think we will, I do think it has to come from the small and medium sized enterprise for all sorts of reasons. We won't go into it here, but listen to the podcast to get a sense of one or two of them. But if you think about Dublin, for example, and if the growth of the the next decade was to be like the last decade, Dublin will just go off, bang, the house price problem just gets worse, the congestion problem, the traffic problems, all of it gets worse, and the, the rural regional development thing gets worse. So I do think that There has to be a reorientation of the Irish economy towards the small and medium-sized enterprise. And that requires a change of mindset from official Ireland. And this is what Neil, I think, was getting at in a lot of what he was saying. And I hope that more people listen to this and we get this debate moving forward. So again, thanks to Neil and thanks to everybody for listening to that podcast. One of the things I would like to remind all our podcast listeners is that our Substack site does contain quite a lot of written material as well. And if you only subscribe to our podcasts via the usual platforms like Apple and Spotify, which many of our listeners do, you will miss the glorious written pieces that do appear on our website. So if you get a chance, please do take a look and feedback to us what it is that you think. There's been a lot going on this week. I'm going to invite Jim now to start with our Little agenda. We want to talk about three or four things today, time permitting. And I think Jim, you listened in to a very interesting conference call only the other day.
2: Yes, Chris, I, um, I I totally agree with what you're saying about the SME sector. And as you know, uh, you are preaching to the converted here because most of my professional work really revolves around the SME sector. So I'm a huge advocate, and I was delighted to hear Neil Macdonald elucidate the all of the issues that he sees as affecting the SME sector. So I think that is a really important debate to start, as you say. But yesterday morning, I was a participant in a uh, Institute of Directors presentation from Martin Shanahan, the head of the IDA. And you know he gives the, the perspective of the FDI side of the economy. The statistics are impressive, 257,000 people employed another 205,000 people indirectly employed. So you're looking at a sector that accounts for 462,000 jobs directly and indirectly. And interestingly, and this reflects something Neil was saying the other day, you know, a lot of his SME members actually do business with these multinational companies. So there's a lot of interlinkages and that's really, really important. Um, He went through the reasons why You know, Ireland is so successful in terms of attracting FDI, um, the tax situation, the talent pool, and particularly, and I like this, he was stressing the importance of being able to attract talented people into the country from overseas to, you know, satisfy the labour market requirements. He was talking about the stability of the tax regime. He was talking about the ease of doing business, EU membership. And then the fact that we speak English and have common law. So all all of these well-tried and trusted um, reasons why Ireland is so successful. Um, And a couple of things struck me. You know, one was the point he made about the stability of the tax regime. I remember before Brian Lenehan's awful budget, when the USC was introduced, I think that was back in 2009, um, I was brought up the Dublin Mountains with Father Sean Healy of Cori, to record a piece for primetime, basically making 10 suggestions each as to why, or, or as to how Brian Lenehan could fill the gaping gap in the public finances at the time. And I went through 10 issues that I believed should happen. Uh, but one of those was that the corporation tax rate should be increased from 12.5% to 20%. Perhaps on a temporary basis. Um, and, and the reason why I argued that was not necessarily because it would raise a lot of revenue, but it would help get social solidarity to get behind the really, really difficult job that Brian Lennon had to do. But I was astounded at the time by the reaction I got, um, very vitriolic response from Official Ireland, from the IDA, from lots of other people. And um I, I was I was I have to say, I was very, very surprised by the sort of negative reaction I got. But the compelling argument that the IDA made to me at the time was that the stability of our tax regime and the certainty is really important. And if you adjust it once, albeit temporarily, you create a precedent. And that then undermines and chips away at the certainty uh, that the tax regime gives us. So I, th- I thought that was interesting. And obviously, based on what Martin Shanahan was saying yesterday, um, it is still uppermost in the strategy of the IDA. Uh, The final point I would make about what Martin Shanahan said, um, in January, the IDA launched a new strategy out to 2025. They're talking about, over that period, attracting 800 new investments, 50,000 new jobs. And I think addressing one of the points you made there about the whole regional economic piece being you know, being undermined if the growth continued to come from the FDI side rather than the SME side. Uh, but the IDA has a target of roughly 50% of jobs that come in now go to the region. So there is that there there is a regional element to what they're doing. Um and then I'm not going to go through, but he went through the pillars of how the IDA is going to achieve all of this. And the cynic in me would think uh this stuff is just marketing blurb, it's what you'd expect. But then the realist in me realizes that actually the IDA has been saying this sort of stuff for many years and most importantly has been incredibly successful in delivering. So um I I, I think I think you have to take your hands off, your hat off, excuse me, to the IDA for what they've achieved. And you know, it is a really, really important component of the economy. But um, as you said, the SME component is also incredibly important 99.8% of businesses in the SME sector and so on so that's the two sectors of the economy you would hope they will work hand in hand to drive our economy out of the covid situation
1: absolutely and the the point i was the point i was making about the multinationals was not that i think they're going anywhere very soon. And I certainly hope not. What we have, we hold. My point was more about changes, about growth, about about the next decade that's going to be so important. Recovering from the COVID crisis is going to take a long time, particularly from an employment point of view. And I think we can't rely on the multinationals to generate the jobs that we're going to need, that we must generate. And they almost by definition have to come from where they've been lost, which is the SME sector. And that's, what I think requires the different mindset, particularly from Official Ireland. In some ways, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's partly PR and it's partly reality. Um, SMEs are not sexy in the way that Apple, Google, and Netflix are. They, they just don't have that cachet, that thing that perhaps attracts the, certainly they attract the attention of the media. Um, it's much more interesting talking about Apple than it is about um, some small business down in the country. Um, well, and in fact, I'm arguing that the small business down in the country is more important going forward than Apple, Facebook, and the rest of them.
2: Yeah, I I, I note that one of the comments that was put up on social media uh, in response to the Neil Macdonald podcast was that um, it was good to have a discussion on the SME sector, important to highlight its significance, etc. And and you wouldn't understand Chris uh, the, the, the 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 following comment that was made, but basically. He said that there was a view here in Ireland that the SME sector was the Nicky Rackard of the GA world, the Nicky Rackard Cup of the GA world, whereas the um, multinationals were the Lee McCarthy. So, in other words, I know you don't understand that, Chris, but um, in other words, he was sort of <laughs> he was sort of saying that the multinational sector tends to be put up there as the premium sporting event whereas the really important SME sector is regarded as a much lesser sporting event which is the Nikki Racker Cup but I thought that summarized it really really perfectly you know definitely the SME sector is not not regarded as sexy.
1: I didn't understand that but now thanks I do. I'm deeply grateful for your explanation for what did puzzle me greatly at the time. So we're on the same page. The multinationals are incredibly important, but we've got to elevate the the indigenous Irish economy. That's what we're talking about. And I was fascinated to listen to your remarks the IDA were making about the stability of the tax system in terms of explaining Ireland's success and therefore uh, hoping that it stays stable going forward. It's probably going to be anything but stable if uh, some reports are out of, over the last few days or anything to go by, because we've got a new commission on taxation, not the first one we've had. It's been set up this week by Pascal Donahue to report, I think, in the middle of next year. And it's going to take a look at all sorts of different things but the list of suspect is the usual one. Um, we've had a more immediate uh, suggestion of tax changes uh, from the United States, but it's all part of this similar, same picture that taxes, basically everywhere, are going to be going up over the next few years on both sides of the Atlantic in the United States, probably in Ireland, depending on the report and whether or not its conclusions are going to be implemented in Ireland that I just mentioned. And it's almost certainly the case that taxes are going to be rising in the United Kingdom as well. But what Joe Biden did this week was really interesting from a whole host of perspectives. First of all, he's delivering on his manifesto promises, and he's he's leaked, somebody in the White House has leaked the idea that capital gains tax in the United States is going to rise. And It was the opening of a a negotiation with Congress, and who knows where that negotiation ends up. But the current structure of of capital gains taxes in the United States favours rich people a lot. And you don't need to be some lefty socialist bleeding-heart liberal to recognise what is just a matter of arithmetic, because capital gains taxes in the United States are much much less than income taxes so that's produced all sorts of distortions one of which is very easy to describe which is that and if you can you call whatever money you're earning or getting from whatever source as a capital gain rather than a wage or a salary and our friends in the hedge funds and private equity and all those sorts of businesses have a device called carried interest it's a piece of jargon that means basically they can call their income capital gains rather than income. And so it's taxed very, very differently, and, f- and far less. Now, current capital gains taxes in the United States, when you add them all up, are about 23.8%. And Biden is very roughly suggesting for rich earners, for our friends in the hedge fund community in particular, and by which he means anybody that makes over a million bucks a year, a lot of money by anybody's standards, I guess, he's going to double the capital gains tax and eliminate the carried interest thing. And so that's just elicited a whole host of cries of pain and anguish from the usual suspects that you could possibly imagine. Um, some uh, venture capitalists from California have been tweeting furiously that this is the end of the American dream, uh, somewhat over the top. As I say, this is an opening bid. It will be less once the negotiations are concluded with Congress, much less if the Republican Party has its way. Another interesting aspect about this was the way in which the equity market, the stock market, reacted by selling off heavily. And you might think this is a bit odd, because when you raise capital gains taxes on individuals, why would that affect company valuations? Well, the answer is that the market was trying to anticipate all these rich people selling their stocks, selling their equities before these tax rises on the capital gains kick in. One investment bank has calculated that these rich people have something like a trillion dollars of unrealized capital gains sitting on. So that could be an awful lot of selling. But it would just be selling that is being brought forward. It would be a timing effect. I don't think that this would have a permanent impact. People look back to the last time we had a tweak to capital gains tax in the States, which was 2012. And then when we knew it was coming, the market basically did nothing for, for much of that time period. And then once the capital gains tax had taken, increase had taken place at the end of 2012, the market took off in 2013. So I think at worst, it's it's a timing issue. But, you know, it is weird that a few weeks ago we had corporation taxes announced that they were going up or Biden wants to put them up and the market didn't notice. You would think that they would have a more impact on the stock market than capital gains. It just shows you how weird the, the stock market can be. But there is another but as well, which it, 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 we have these narratives that we say, well, the stock market went down heavily last Thursday or reasonably heavily as a result of these CGT, capital gains tax change changes that Biden's bringing in. But it's very rare that one story or event or theme is the one that drives markets. We create these narrative fallacies, these stories to explain things that are actually quite difficult to explain. There are often many, many things going on. And I think that higher taxes, not just capital gains, in one form or another are coming to the US in the same way that they're coming to Ireland. And something else that is coming our way is the end of super easy monetary policy, the end of ultra low interest rates. And what the market each day is getting just a little bit more worried about is that the window for getting out of these ultra low interest rates is slowly closing. By that, I mean the window for getting out cleanly, smoothly and painlessly. And I was fascinated to listen to a conversation with Mohammed El-Aryan, who's a well-known market commentator analyst, talking about this closing window. And he thinks that when the Fed eventually, the central bank in the US eventually announces in one way or another, that it's not going to be pumping quite so much money into the system, it's going to be a really bad day for financial markets. And it'll be something Um, worse than the taper tantrum that we had in 2013. The taper tantrum was the last time the Federal Reserve started to talk about, um, a bit early, uh, to talk about ending super low interest rates. The bond market and the equity market had a mini meltdown and it proved to be short-lived because the Fed backtracked. It won't do this time. So he thinks it's going to be worse, potentially quite worse than that. Um, but he, in his words, he didn't think it was going to be as bad as the Lehman moment of a decade or so ago, which just the mere mention of that should send shivers down our spine. So he cl- he talked about it in terms of this closing of this available window for a clean exit from super low interest rates. I'd use a different metaphor, actually. I'd use the one that says that the Fed is actually digging a very deep hole for itself. And the more it keeps digging, the harder it is to achieve this clean exit. And I'm starting to get quite concerned about this from a market point and economic point of view. So when the market has a wobble like it did after this capital gains tax, this is, a, this is finally the end of this point. You'll be pleased to know, Jim. I think it's worried about other things other than just corporation tax. I think it's worried about what's actually going to happen. And so in a way, the conclusion I draw is that the market is simply looking for excuses to sell off now because of this problem with the Fed. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I guess the explanation you give for the market sell-off um, following that capital gains tax announcement does make sense. But surely, the, OK, it, 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 it could certainly bring forth a lot of premature selling of equities. But would it not impact the demand side as well? Because Um, Would I be more reluctant to invest in equities if I believe I'm going to have to pay a much higher rate of capital gains tax? So I'm not sure if there's, I think there may be a bit of a, a demand focus there as well. In terms of the capital gains tax rate, I remember when Charlie McCreevy slashed the Irish capital gains tax rate. The left in this country went absolutely berserk. And they're still berserk about it because if if you really want to piss off um, a left wing commentator on a media show, whatever, just make some reference to uh, the success of McCreevy's CGT rate cut and you're guaranteed to get a little bit of a tantrum on your hands. Uh, But what actually happened at the time was by slashing the capital gains tax rate, there was a dramatic increase in capital transactions. And the government, within a couple of years, ended up collecting more than three times the, the old tax take at the, at the much higher rate. Because the, the lower CGT rate definitely brought forth a lot of activity, um, which benefited the public finances enormously. You know, it, it does remain to be seen if Trump, or sorry, if Biden does deliver that CGT increase, what sort of impact it, it actually does have on transactions and on the tax take because increasing taxes does not necessarily lead to increased revenues. Um, I think um, even you would have to accept that, Chris. I I note with some concern that in the last three or four weeks, since we last discussed markets in any significant way, you have definitely become um, a lot more nervous now than you were then. So I, I guess it's the old Keynesian thing. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? and that there there is definitely evidence that the you know the, the the growth background is incredibly strong we are starting to see some um inflationary pressures emerging and we got for example out of europe today i think a pretty phenomenal set of numbers um and be- before i go through those uh, any, any response to what I'm saying, there,
1: Chris? I, I would agree. Um, the, the point about tax revenues—that there is a point beyond which, if you raise them, raise tax rates, your revenues will fall. Older listeners might remember the Laffer curve, something that was first posited a long time ago. And yeah, I think—and I think one of the really interesting things about Irish and American tax systems, doing doing the comparison, is that I think that in a lot of cases, certainly historically at least, Ireland is an example of where cutting tax rates has increased revenues. I think there's far less examples of that in the United States. So although the Laffer curve was invented for the United States, I think it had more empirical applicability, historically at least, to to Ireland. And that's to do with the very penal rates of taxation that have prevailed for long periods of time in Ireland. But coming back to your most recent point there about inflation, Jim, that's why I'm not so much changing my mind as moving my mind along, if you like, as, as the data is coming in. We, we've been right to be positive about equities. They've continued to go up. They, they had this wobble this week, ostensibly over the CGT issue. But I think that what equities are starting to really have to confront, all asset markets actually, not just equities, there's bonds, everything, is this inflation issue. And everywhere, everywhere you look, Jim, inflation is coming in a little bit higher.
2: But can I stop you in your tracks a second, um, if I may? This nervousness is certainly not being reflected in bond yields. The US 10 year bond yield today is at 1.53. It was over 1.75 a few weeks ago when we really did have some market jitters about inflation. The German bond yield is still well negative. So bond markets aren't reflecting these fears yet. And, And is it unusual for bond markets to actually lag? equity markets like
1: this yeah the relationship is is variable and it it switches around the regimes change and the correlations as a result change you could argue that the you know bond yields rose in the early part of this year to reflect these inflation worries that we're talking about equities took no notice and now are only just starting to recognize what bonds had done in the first three months or the first two months of this year actually so you can argue it both ways and cherry pick the data if you want but the but the the fact the one fact that has started to make me a little bit not a lot a little bit more nervous than I was was for example you mentioned the PMIs purchasing manager indices really really important forward looking indicators of economic activity that have been published for Europe um, on a pan European basis this morning and within those if you look at both input and output prices bit of bit of jargon there the various ways we look at prices in, along the economic process chain, you can see the pressures. And the debate is still there. It's whether those pressures are likely to be temporary or whether they're likely to be sustained. And, and we've had that discussion. We've indicated that we think the pressures are, are, are going to be temporary. And I still think that. It's the difference between talking about something and living through something. We've been talking about living through higher inflation, albeit we think temporary, I think we're now starting to live through it. This is the beginning of the act. We were talking about it in theory, and now we're going to be living through it in practice. And we're going to we're about to find out. And it's probably going to take us at least a year to find out whether or not these price pressures are likely to be temporary. But it was, the, the numbers this morning, as I'm sure you've seen, Jim, were striking.
2: They were indeed, Chris. I, I think first before I take you through the numbers, it's probably interesting to explain to listeners, what a purchasing managers index is, it's basically a diffusion index, which means that you survey businesses. And if more businesses believe that things are going to get better than worse, you get a reading over 50. If more businesses believe that things are going to get worse than better, well, then you have a reading under 50. So 50 is the pivot point between contraction and expansion. And I suppose the other point about these purchasing managers indices is that they are pretty decent forward indicators um, of what's coming down the tracks. They have a, they have a good predictive track record, um, I think. So, And they're also conducted for both manufacturing and services. And then they publish a composite of the two. And the composite this morning for the euro area, sorry for the UK, I beg your pardon, went from 56.4 to 60. Very, very strong. The services sector rebounded very strongly. That reflects the fact that outdoor hospitality was starting to resume in the UK. And then the manufacturing side very strong as well.
1: Can I just add to that that the thing that I found most striking about those numbers was how strong they were relative to their past. Now, we would all expect some bounce back from the awful recession that the UK has had over the last while, thanks to coronavirus but the, these were the strongest numbers since, you talked about two there, since November 2013 and August 2014, respectively. So I would suggest that this is not just about bounce back. I'm not sure, but I think there's some actual proper growth in there as well.
2: Yeah, I think it would appear to be the case. Um, in, in the euro area, uh, there was a jump in the composite index from 53.2 to 53.7. Not dramatic in a sense, but there's a couple of things that stand out. One is that it actually increased and the market expectation was a a reasonably weak number. So it was stronger than expected. Um, And given the circumstances of lockdown and renewed lockdown in the euro area, that is significant. And I think the other bit that really stands out is that the manufacturing side, very, very strong, over 63.4 to be precise. So these are in a historical context, very strong numbers. So it does suggest that there's something strong happening on the manufacturing side across the Euro area. And the and it, it is telling, actually, that within the Euro area, Germany is one of the weaker ones, which is traditionally the manufacturing powerhouse of Europe. So a number of other countries are seeing strong rebound in manufacturing activity. The service one... There are no surprises there because the service sector is the sector that is subject to the restrictions that have been imposed across many countries. It includes retail, it includes various service sector activities, the activities that are uh, most adversely affected, as I say, by the restrictions. But even there in Europe... And the services reading is over 50. So strong numbers. And within the numbers also, we see that particularly in Europe, but I think also in the UK, that there are price pressures becoming apparent, both input prices and output prices are starting to heat up a little bit. And that kind of feeds into um, your narrative there about thinking about and living through um, an inflationary period but very very strong numbers there's no doubt about it
1: they were extraordinary the um the in the 23 years of the history of these pmis these purchasing manager indices for the uk there's actually only been one stronger period in the autumn of 2013 this was an incredibly strong number for for the uk and i was struck by your comments there about germany the way in which it was reasonably weak within a very set of strong numbers for the eurozone as a whole So there's clearly something going on. And finally, your point about manufacturing, I thought was a really good one because that corresponds with what's happening in the United States and elsewhere, that this recovery is very much being driven by manufacturing, um, older industries, if you like, um, which, which I find really, really interesting. So it's a slightly different type of recovery. And once services join in, and I think this is one of the things that worries me about the inflation point of view, is that services are the ones that have been restricted by all the coronavirus rules, as you've said, in the UK, in two and a half weeks' time, all indoor dining and pubs is opening. That's service industries. They announced today in Wales that they're joining England um, three weeks Monday for full outdoor dining, full outdoor and indoor dining and pubs. and all. So reopening is happening, which will enable services to join this manufacturing rebound. And that's what is beginning to make me twitch just a little about just how we're gonna be dealing with these pipeline pressures. I was struck moving the conversation about the same thing, but different geography to the United States. Um, there's a, I, I wrote about this in a, in a blog for, for our Substack site. If anybody wants to see it, the link is there. There's a wonderful conversation between Gillian Tett, who's the managing editor for the FT in the United States and Larry Summers, professor at Harvard, ex-Treasury secretary, and absolutely died in the wool Keynesian economist would normally be all for supporting economic stimulus along the lines that Joe Biden is saying. But he has a very strong view that the US economy is already on fire, and it doesn't have the spare capacity to deal with all of this stimulus that Biden is raising taxes to pay for. And we talked a little bit about that. And he thinks that there is too high a risk being run here of inflation in the united states it's very very early days for this debate it's one that we have had on this podcast and in our writings for some time now and jim we're, you know that we're going to be coming back to this many many times over certainly over the course of this year but it's going it, this one is going to run and run and, and I, we should make no apology for alerting our readers readers and listeners to the fact that uh Um, we will be coming back to it. I know you want to talk before we finish about some debt numbers that were released recently, which are really interesting. I just wanted to perhaps lighten the mood slightly, alerting listeners to a great story about uh, about Brexit. There are lots of anecdotes about restrictions on trade between the United Kingdom, or Great Britain really, and, and Northern Ireland. And it was revealed this week that it's even affecting birthday presents of ponies. Apparently, somebody was trying to import some ponies just from Liverpool into Northern Ireland this week, and they got held up because of lack of paperwork. So Brexit goes from um, one more ridiculous moment to the next. And I do think that we are going to get more and more stories like this. But I think you wanted to conclude with one small piece of data that fascinated you.
2: Uh, Yes, Chris, absolutely. Um, There was debt numbers published for the euro area this morning by Eurostat, the European Statistical Agency, where government debt levels and budget deficits were at the end of 2020. And the government debt measured as a percentage of GDP in the euro area hit 98% at the end of last year. So to put a bit of context on that, it's up from 83.9% a year earlier. And it's the highest level of debt seen in the Euro area since the Eurozone was created back on in January 1999. So big debt numbers. And that does feed into the whole nervousness about the inflation debate or our conversation we've just had about the implications of that for bond yields and interest rates. And it does show the bind that central banks are in at the moment because They really need to be careful, I think, um, that they do not um, scare bond markets, push bond yields up, and suddenly turn these big debt levels into something more problematical for the countries involved. So these are big, big numbers. And of course, Greece is up there at 205%, Italy, 156%. So a lot of countries with very, very significant debt levels. And Final point, um, while we were on the discussion about very strong data numbers, I noticed that in the UK, retail sales jumped by a massive 5.4% during the month of March. And within that, there was growth of 17.5% in closed sales. Um, and I guess your your fellow countrymen over there are dressing up before they are allowed out to meet their friends again. So there's a bit of vanity driving that number. Well, I
1: certainly am, Jim. Good. I'm delighted, Chris. Absolutely. Yeah, everything is linked to everything else. You know, we talked about the PMIs, we talked about rapid economic growth and those incredibly strong UK numbers. We might all be dressing up to go out to the pub, but one thing... That pony's story told us is that we're having trouble exporting. And within those PMIs, the export numbers for the UK were very weak. So that there was a sting in the tail. And it's a reminder, just we'll conclude here, I think, Jim, that in, in the modern world, everything is connected to everything else. We, we join the dots on this podcast. Yeah, Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Chris.
2: You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,